Um, over the last few weeks, uh, we have been in a series, Mitchell has already let us know we've been in a series called In Him, In Him. And we're getting a chance to explore the book of Ephesians that uh, the many, many times that the Bible or the book of Ephesians talks about what it means to be in Him. You know, and so we broke it up into three different sections in this first section between, you know, three weeks ago and now today. Uh, we're going to take a break next week and celebrate Mother's Day. But we said this first section is about being in Him, but the subtitle is that we are His workmanship. We are His workmanship. You know, and over, the, um, over these few weeks, basically, we've got a chance to break this down into three different, seri- three different parts. And, you know, and it has started off with one of the longest sentences in the Bible. It's a run-on sentence um, in chapter 1, verses 3 through 14, where it talks about what it means to be in him. And that in him, that we, that he pours out every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. That he doesn't hold back. That we talked about that God the Father chooses us and he adopts us. That God the Son, he redeems us and unites us. That God the Holy Spirit, he seals us and then he guarantees us. And Paul, in this desire, in this, in this passion to do it, he just kind of goes on. And I just believe that he's hype and he's excited because he wants us to get it. He wants us to, to grasp the power that we have in Christ Jesus. But he also recognizes and understands the doubt that many of us have. Because so many times it seems like that the testimony of the broken is far outweighs the, the testimony of God's power. And so oftentimes, and so sometimes we, we struggle with grasping that. And so Paul, what we saw in the, in the second um, um, sermon that we did, is that Paul begins to pray. And in, in Paul's prayer, he begins to pray so that, the, that our eyes would be open to this knowledge, to the wisdom of the revelation, to the knowledge of what it means to be in him. He prays that our eyes would be opened, that we'd be enlightened to the wealth of our inheritance, the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. He prays that we would see the power of his resurrection that we recognize that with Christ we both died and we were raised. And that's what it means to be in him. But then Paul goes in and then he kind of gets logical for a minute and he begins to appeal to our senses by, he begins to explain why. And just like last week, we, we got a chance to see that this is, that we see the power of his resurrection because once we were dead and now we are alive in him, for those that are in him. And he gives us basically this kind of four-part understanding is that we were dead to our sin. We was made um, by God's riches. We were made alive. He raised us from the grave, and now he seats us in the heavens in Christ Jesus. And then he ends with this, with this kind of crescendo where he tells us that in him we are saved by grace. That it's a gift of God. That it's not by our works, not by ourselves, so that no one could boast. But then he goes on and says that we were created, we were God's workmanship, created by Christ Jesus. We were God's workmanship, created for good works. You see, over these last three weeks, we talked about, and we've given you some of these fancy words. We talked about things like ex agarazzo, 
The, this concept of that he redeemed us. When we talked about Christ redeemed us, he, he didn't hold back. But in this exile, he cornered the market, that he bought it all out. That he lavished his riches on us. We talked about words like propitiation, where he talks about the idea that, we, that because of God laying it all down, that he's, we satisfied the wrath of God. That, that it was wrath that was declared for you and for me, but instead he put it on Christ and satisfied God's wrath because God has a problem. That God is holy and he can't allow sin to be in his presence. But God loves us and he doesn't want to punish us. And so what does he do? He sends his son and he satisfies his wrath on his son. And that word propitiation means that he to satisfy the wrath of God. And, and so what he does is that he takes all of this and he brings it up to that word. He says that ultimately what I want you to see, we are his poema. We are his masterpiece. We are his workmanship. You see, what God is doing is that in these first few chapters that he talks about his work. What he's done, that we are saved by grace, not of ourselves. That God has cornered the marks, that he satisfied God's wrath, that we are his masterpiece. That God has reconciled the world to himself through the person and the work of his son, Jesus. You see, and there's a couple of things that we ought to get out of these first, all the way from chapter 1, verses 3, all the way to chapter 2, verses 10, when he talks about we are his workmanship. We are to first understand that God, that we are his workmanship, we are his masterpiece by recognizing that God's masterpiece is that he's done it all by himself. That this is not a, a synergistic reality that's taking place, but it's what, what the word calls is monergistic. Right? You know what the idea of monergistic basically is what we see come there's two words. It's monergism. Basically, mono basically means by myself, alone. Jism basically means power. So what he's ultimately saying that when we talk about it's his workmanship, that God's salvation is not a cooperative thing between us and God. It was one energy. It was God moving, God operating, God's workmanship, that we are his masterpiece in Christ Jesus, because it was him working, right? You know, another way to kind of put it is that when you think about English, right? In English, we talk about the active tense versus the passive tense. The active tense was like the word we talk about, I hit the ball, right? That in there is just like I, the, the verb is in the active. I hit the ball. Or it could be in the passive tense and say, I was hit by the ball, right? And it's, that is in the passive. Right? And so what, what we are saying when God is talking about, when we talk about this concept of being his workmanship, that this is one energy, this is all God's work. How do I know that? Because what we're going to look at in chapters 2, 11 through 12, we're going to see the very first imperative. If you go back and look and then you go back and read all these chapters 1 and chapter 2, you won't see one command by God. One thing, because he doesn't want you to think that his workmanship is kind of this cooperative thing. But this is one energy, one movement that God's work 
is moving on our behalf, that he held nothing back, that God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit has lavished it all on us and that we present, he presents us holy and blameless before God. It's not our works, but it's a gift of God. It's God's gift. And that gift that God is doing is the gift of reconciliation. And what we're going to see is that we see this gift of reconciliation happening in twofold. That it is first reconciling ourselves between us and God. And we see that in the first 10 verses of chapter 2. Because he said we were dead in our trespasses. We were made alive in Christ. But it's because by grace that we've been saved. We are his workmanship. But then now what we're going to see is the same thing. But there's only a couple of differences. He's going to go from the individual, focus on our relationship or our reconciliation between us and God, to the collective and to the corporate. He goes from a me unto a we. And what he's going to demonstrate to us that his power comes about in a reconciliation that's not just vertical, but it's also horizontal. That is a horizontal reconciliation that takes place when God lavishes his grace upon us, when we see his workmanship. So we go from the individual to the corporate. But the other thing that we're going to see is the emphasis on this first imperative. The first imperative. And you know what that imperative is? You know what our response to God is? It's simply to remember. That's the one thing God calls us to do in these first two chapters is to remember that we are in him. That is our responsibility, is to stay connected to the vine. So really what I did was I broke this up into three sections in 11 through 22, and we're going to look at three parts of it, because um, what he says, and he kind of uses the same exact outline. If you kind of mirror 1 through, 1 through 10 and 11 through 22, you actually see the same kind of logic. We were dead. God made us alive. You know what that means. And then ultimately, um, the, the access that we have, the new creation that comes in light of it, that, that this, this, our response about being his workmanship. So three points, three points um, as it calls us to remember. One, we ought to remember who we are without Christ. We got to remember what we have in Christ. And then we got to remember why we have access to Christ. Remember who we are without Christ. Remember what we have in Christ and remember why we have access to Christ. Let me pray one more time. Father, we're thankful for this opportunity before you. Lord, give us wisdom. Give us grace. Give us your mercy. Um, and we'll do it all. And we'll respond, Father, through the power and the presence of your Holy Spirit. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So first we want to look at it is remember who we were without Christ. Right? Verse 11, it starts off with it says, so then. Right there, some of your translations have the word therefore. Right? So right here, when we talk about the therefore, that he, the author, Paul, is immediately trying to make sure that we are connecting the two. Right? And so when we're connecting the two, that the last thing that he says, that we were his workmanship. We have to remember verse 10, that we were created in Christ Jesus 
for good works, that there is a twofold, that God in his energy has shaped us and formed us because he's lavished his grace and his mercy upon us. But then now he is talking about we have been created for good works. And so then he goes and says, so then, so therefore, the response is, and this is the imperative, remember. Remember. Remember that at one time you were Gentiles in the flesh, called the, uncir- called the uncircumcised by those called the circumcision, which is done in the flesh by human hands, right? So what we see right here is that he says, listen, therefore God has made us alive. We have been made new. We need to walk in that newness. But Paul repeats the same thing that he just said in the first 10 verses. And then what he now tells us as the command, the only command in all of the first two chapters of the book of Ephesians is to remember. Now, let me tell you, remember doesn't mean something. It doesn't mean that we forgot something. Right? It doesn't just simply mean forgotten, but that, that the concept where right here when it talks about remembering, it means that there's something that God wants to be brought at the forefront of our mind. He, he wants it to be front and center. Right? You see, this imperative that God has given us is not a suggestion that God is having. What he is saying is that I want you to make what you, your testimony of the past, and I want you to bring God's faithfulness and God's activity in your life in the past and what he's done, and I want you to bring it to present. Right? I want you to recognize that God's faithfulness is a means to your present faith. The way that we are able to remember God's faithfulness in the past is a means to helping us to live in the present faith, right? And so in here, we ought to remember. We ought to remember that we are his workmanship. We, are, we ought to remember. But what's interesting about this is that in this passage, for the first time that we recognize that there was beef that we had with God in the first you know, chapter and a half, but now we also talked about there's also beef, there's also frustration, there's also tension that we have horizontally. So he goes from this horizontal disconnection to now, or the vertical disconnection now to the horizontal disconnection. And then so in the same, the first time he says, you were dead in your transgressions. Remember that in the first now he says, remember in the same way, he says, you are equally dead, but this time you are dead. That doesn't, your deadness doesn't impact solely the vertical relationship, but it also impacts your horizontal relationship. He says that you were one time, you were Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcised by those called the circumcised, which is done in the flesh by human hands. That he says that this is a self-made, self-conjured thing. It's sort of like race that we have in our community today, that we know that race is a social construct that was made. And so that there's all, that when we see God who has given us in him the ministry of reconciliation as men, we have found all different types of ways to build up different walls, to create division, different reasons to separate ourselves, whether it's white, black, Hispanic, whether it's poor or, uh, poor or rich, whether it's social economics, whether it's education, we have found different ways. And it just it befuddles me because even in a pandemic, we found a way how to divide over just like getting vaccinated. 
whether we're we're masked. If there's a way for us to divide, basically what he is saying is that the human has created it. It's man-made. It's different ways that we are able to distinguish ourselves. And what happens is, is that we have beef, not just with God, but our beef is with one another. And there's cause division. There's division that we see taking place in here. So he says, remember that. I want you to remember, and there's two key words that I want you. The first one was remember, and the second one is that that mindset, the mindset of the flesh has certain ramifications, and the, mind, the ramification that it is, it's one without God. And so again, looking at verse 12, you're going to see three times we're going to see this, this idea, but four implications here. It says, at that time, verse 12, you were without Christ, excluded from the citizenship of Israel, foreigners of the covenants of promise. We're basically without access. But then he also brings it back, he says, without hope and without God in the world. This type of thinking brings about a lifestyle or a way of living that is without, that goes without. And the first thing that he talks about is that you got to remember when, when you, back in your days, back when you had a time before Christ, you were without him. What did that bring about? Basically, that brought about one, that you were without access, that you were excluded from the citizenship of Israel. You were foreigners of the covenants of promise, Right? You are without a mediator. When you are without Christ, you are without the person, without Jesus. You are without the mediator between God and man. This was the very cry all the way from the book of Job. Job is lamenting, and he says, I need a mediator between me and God. I need someone. And that was the very lament all the way from the book of Genesis from man is that God is holy and I'm not. And I need someone to bridge the gap, someone to, be, to speak on my behalf and to speak on God's behalf, I need a mediator, I need an intercessor, someone to stand in the gap. And this from the very beginning in Genesis chapter 3, where it says, as soon as sin entered into the world, God said, guess what? When we see the proto-evangelion, the first gospel, he says, I will send in a mediator, a mediator. That this is something that God knows, but without Christ and without a mediator, we are without access. We're kicked out of the garden. We're kicked out of the city. And there's no access to God. That without Christ, who are we, without God the Son, who redeems us and unites us back to God, we are isolated. We are by ourselves. We are without access. Right? It sort of kind of reminded me of if, you know, let's just imagine 20 years from now, one of my sons. Um, came, you know, DJ had one of his friends. And, and I remember, like, if we just, or if we think about it, um, 20 years from now, his friend knocks on the door, and I don't remember him. I don't kind of see his face. And, and he begins to say, hey, hey, can I come in? Can I grab something to eat? I'm kind of hungry. Can I? And I'm looking at this person, this grown man that I don't know, that I don't have any connection with. And I'm like, no, you can't eat. You can't come in my house. You can't. There's no access into my house. I don't just open up my door and allow people just to come in. 
But now, what if he says, hey, the reason why I knocked on your door is because, you know, I was good friends with your son DJ, and back in the days, me and DJ, we was connecting. We were, and basically, he started talking about his good connection with DJ. At that point now, I may give him access to my refrigerator, access into my home, not because of anything that he has done, but simply because he, has, he knows my son. And so right here, basically says, without him, you don't have any citizenship. You have no access to the covenant blessings that I, that I have. There's no access, right? So without Christ, you have no access. Without Christ, you have no hope. He says, at that time, you were without Christ, excluded from the citizenship of Israel, foreigners of the covenant of promise, without hope. Right? You see, one of the things that we recognize that if you don't have, we're in. Let's go back. He spent the first chapter and a half explaining that God the Son, God the Father chooses us and adopts us. God the Son redeems us, unites us. God the Holy Spirit seals us and guarantees us. If we don't have the seal of the Holy Spirit, we have no hope that God's coming back. And this is the reason why the Bible says that the Holy Spirit testifies. That even in the midst of persecution, even in the midst of pain, even in the midst of misery, even in the midst of sin in the Congo, 200 to 600 people died because of a landslide. In light of what happened in Allen, Texas, the shooting, the mass shootings, in light of all the brokenness that we have, that if we don't have him without Christ, there's no hope. You see, and what we're talking about, let me just break down what Christian hope. It's not like, you know, we're going to go outside and set clouds up like there's a 50% chance that it's going to rain. That's not Christian hope. What hope is, is sort of like that, um, that Christmas present hope, right? In Colossians chapter 1 and 5, it talks about that we have a hope that's laid up for us in heaven. It's, you know, when I talk about that Christmas hope, growing, growing up, we used to have a thing, basically. It's like, who could get the, um, the other siblings in trouble? Right? And, you know, because if, if we got the other siblings in trouble, their Christmas would be delayed. Right? So on Christmas Eve, we're just getting one another. We're trying to mess with each other. We're trying to do different things because if we can get one another in trouble, your Christmas is going to be delayed. We were evil. We was wrong. <laughs> but this is what we did. But you see, we all knew, I'm not going to be wavered. I know what you're trying to do. You're trying to stir up things now, but you see, my present has already been purchased. It's already been laid out. I can see it under the tree. So when I'm walking into my hope, that my hope is not for maybe I'll get it. I already know I've got it because it's already been bought but I'm going to walk in and there's a hope that I have that I'm going to get my present tomorrow so I'm not going to allow the present to impact my future. There's a hope. But he says, but those who have not put their trust within Christ, those who live without Christ, has no hope. They're just betting on themselves. They're betting on intellect. They're betting on the knowledge that they think that they got it right, that they're smarter than the Bible. Right? They're betting on hope. A 50-50 hope, not a biblical hope. 
And so the Bible says those without Christ, they don't have access. They don't have hope. And he says, basically, you see this kind of descending order. Basically, he says, what those without Christ living a life without God. Without God. At that time, you were without Christ, excluded from the citizenship of Israel, foreigners of the covenants of promise, without hope, ultimately without God in the world. You're without the Father. Because if you don't have the Father, you don't have the Son, and you don't have the Spirit, you're without the Father. You're without Him. You're without Him. And this is the only time in all of the New Testament that this word is mentioned. The word is atheos. This is where we get the word atheist. Atheos. Ah is without. Theos, God. Without God. You see, but here's the truth. Here's the reality. There's two different types of atheists. There's one that have that, that they're professing atheists. They're atheists by their lips. They profess to be atheists. But there's another type of atheist that I believe is the, the atheists that are atheists by life. They may profess that there is a God, but they live their life as if there is none. Right? And so what we see is that in here, that there's, a, there's this descending order that you are living. Remember, before you were with Christ, you didn't have access. You didn't have hope. You were living your life, both in life and in lip, as though there was no God. And Paul says, it's like, this is the reality. This is the reality that we have. And so Paul calls us back and says, you need to remember how you were before you knew Christ, how you were before Christ. Paul didn't just talk about this. This is a practice that he did, whether it was Paul remembering his testimony in 1 Timothy chapter 1, right? Verse 13, where it says, even though I was a formerly a blasphemer, a, pros- a persecutor, an arrogant man, Paul remembered whether it was Paul in Romans chapter 7, even as a believer, he says, I remember what, I, what, my, what the old man is like. He says, the very things I want to do, I find myself not doing. The very things I don't want to do, I find myself doing it all the more. And he says, I just come to this conclusion. Oh, wretched man that I am. Paul remembered what he's like without Christ. That he remembered. But even not even just the bad things, Paul remembered even not to trust the good things. In Philippians chapter 3, 4 through 10, go back and read it later, that he talks about this idea. He says, watch out for people who put confidence in the flesh. He was just like, if anybody can put confidence in the flesh, I could. He's like, I was the Jew of all Jew. I was doing this. I had all these. And he started listing out all of his resume. He says, but listen, I, I counted all as dung. I counted all as rubbish. I would put no confidence in any of that because I remember the type of man I I was before. And I don't want to put any confidence in that. So Paul says that the way that we are to have reconciliation both to God and reconciliation to one another is that we have to remember. Remember how we were. Remember how we were without Christ. Where we lived as if there was no God. We had no access to God and we had no real hope. Remember. But he doesn't leave us there. See, Paul tells us, he says, the primary purpose for us to remember, we have to remember, again, that we are his workmanship, that it was Christ, and that that we can know the power of that workmanship. And so right here we see kind of the bridge, and so we got to remember what we do have in Christ. We remember what we were, 
before Christ, but we also remember what we have now in Christ. We get this bridge verse right here in verse 13. He says, but now. I know Kenny talked about the butts of God last week. Won't bring that up. I'll let him hold on to that. But right there, the but. But now in Christ Jesus. That what he's ultimately saying is that there has been a conversion that has taken place. There's been a newness. You didn't just get a better version of yourself. You got a new self. That the Christian life is not about you getting incrementally better, incrementally more. The Christian life is about being made new, that you died to yourself and that you've been raised. And so he says, but now in Christ Jesus, it's no longer I that live, but it's the Christ that lives within me. He says, because here's the reality, here's the truth. Now in Christ, you who were far away, you who are far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So what did he do? You see, the difference between being far and near is about access. Right? Because God can part all his riches. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. God can bring all the workmanship. But those who are far away will not experience. But those who are near have access. He says, and what I love is it says that he, even though we were far, we have been brought near, right? Because to be far is someone without citizenship, without certainty, without confidence, without the creator. But those who have been brought near, those that are in Christ, that we see the, the, the reconciliation both vertical and horizontal. Those who are near now have access to citizenship. They now have access to certainty of hope. They have, act, they have confidence. They have God, right? Those that are near and takes the advantage of the blessings of God. That is our responsibility to remember what we have in Christ. And in here, what we see is that we, what we have in Christ is that in verse 14, it says we have access that we, we have access to God's peace. He says, for he is our peace. That word for can either be a reason or it can be a, a result. And as a result of him bringing us near, is the way that you can read it, we have peace. But again, the peace that he's talking about is not the vertical peace because he's already dealt with that peace in the first 10 verses. The peace that he's talking about now is the peace, the horizontal peace that we have. He says, why? Why do we have peace? Because we have peace that it says, who made both groups one, tore down the dividing wall of hostility. He says, he is our peace. How, did he, how do we know he is our peace? He says he's torn down the dividing wall. You see, there was a wall between us. There was a wall between me and you. We had beef with one another. We had frustrations with one another, right? And so he talks about, okay, well, how did he tear, tear it down? He says that God has given us the, the ministry. That, no, the, let me go back. The Bible says that God has reconciled the world to himself. That we no longer see one another according to the flesh. Because God has reconciled. 
And it's what's interesting is that God right here has torn down the dividing wall. And what we do as Christians, we spend the rest of our Christianity trying to rebuild them back up. Trying to rebuild of why we can't get along. Why the multi-ethnic church is bad. The multicultural church is bad. Why? Because we're arguing over worship music, color of carpet. We're arguing over hymns. We're arguing over all the different types of things of determining of why we can't get together. Why we can't be one. And so he says that the gospel tells us that he has torn down the dividing wall and made two one. Right? But I don't just want to overlook it because, we, and just like it, I don't want to overlook here in the, test, in, the, in the scriptures. You got to understand that the people of Israel was under 400 years of oppression when this was written by the Gentiles. 400 years. Do you think the Jews had a, re, a right to want to be separated from them? 400 years. They have been oppressed. They haven't been sovereign all the way since the book of Malachi. They lost their sovereignty back then. And you just can go through all of the different oppressions, all the different things. And so now when you write, when the New Testament is written, they're under Roman rule. And now all of a sudden you got people like Paul talking about reconciliation. Reconciled or what? We ain't never been reconciled. We ain't never had unity. They've always been our oppressors. Reconciled or what? But the Bible tells us that he says he has made the two one. You see, one of the things that we recognize is that in here that he says, listen, what I love about that, he says, like, we have to run to the tension, but we got to run with the heart of reconciliation. He says he is our peace. He tore down the dividing wall. And what I love about it is, is that it's Christ has done the action. And because he has torn down the dividing wall and because he has given us peace in the midst of hostility, we have now access to God's people. Because it says in verse 15, in his flesh, he made no effect. Some of your translation says he abolished. Abolish is the wrong word there. The, the, what it says is that another verse says he nullified. Basically, there's not a real good English word to kind of unpack what it says. He says, when he says that he made of no effect the law consisting of commands and expressed in regulations, basically what he's ultimately saying, it comes from um, the word, uh, it's um, in the Greek. It means to render inoperative. It's a legal term, right? Um, what, what it ultimately says is simply this. Christ did not come to abolish customs. He did not come to abolish, cult abolish culture. It, what it says is that it means to cause something to lose its power, especially as a means to get to God. Everybody has been discipled in a way and in a manner culturally that there are certain ways and certain things that we have to do in order to have a closer relationship with God. You have been discipled in that. You have been discipled in that. And one of the things that we recognize that in the Bible, again, what's the division that they talked about here? In the text, they talked about in chapter 2, verse 11, he says that you were formerly those who were called circumcised and you being the uncircumcised by those. So again, they was causing their division based upon the legal obligation, um, the um, biblical legal obligation culturally by the Jews that all had to be circumcised. 
you, when you see the New Testament, what was the major problem that was going on? The circumcision, that was one of the biggest cultural differences between the Jew and the Gentile. They, and so to be uncircumcised was like even to cut somebody out. Remember David was like, you uncircumcised Philistine. Right, it was just like to kind of tell them. Like it was like a dirty word, right? Like, and, but it was there because it was just like you uncircumcised. Was this, there was a separation that the Jews had with all the rest of the world. These people that have oppressed them, these people that have, that have come. And so Paul comes in, he says, listen, he did not come simply to abolish it. That is kind of, he says, but it's no longer a necessity in order for salvation. So if you recognize this, that in this time, I really believe if you just track the book of Acts, track the book of Acts, all was great in the book of Acts in the first six chapters in the book of Acts. When everybody looked the same, acted the same, talked the same, everybody was culturally the same. The book of Acts was great. Chapter 6, then some cultural differences came. They said there was Hellenistic and Hebraic, different cultures. Then we see first, first systemic prejudice and racism coming in. Then, right, God, what he does, you know, he basically martyrs, right, through Saul of Tarsus. Um, Stephen is martyred, and now the Jews are kicked out. All the Christians are kicked out. And now, in chapter 8 in the book of Acts, they said that the word of God began to go to Judea and Samaria, right? It began to spread. And what happens is from chapter 8 all the way through the end of the book, you see God having to deal with his people and dealing with the multi-ethnic because they didn't like it just as much as we didn't like it. He had to blind Saul of Tarsus. He had to put Peter in a trance. He had to give dreams. He had to rebuke him publicly. All of the things that he has just from taking the, the mission from the Jews to the Gentiles. And ultimately what was being said was, the question in the book of Acts is answering is, how Jewish do I have to be in order to be Christian? That's the question that they're answering. For people who are now getting saved outside of the Jew, because before, when everybody looked the same, acted the same, the question now becomes, how Jewish do I have to be? But now, what we see, right, is the same question that's being asked right now in America. And, you know, we talk about white evangelicalism is, and, and basically what people and what minorities are simply asking the question is, how white do I have to be in order to be Christian? How much of the culture do we have to embrace? And so we have this tension. And so Paul right here says he has made the two one. But what's interesting about it is that when he says that he has nullified or made of no, of, of made of no effect, is that what you also will see throughout all of the New Testament, not one time ever did Paul tell the Jews to stop being circumcised. He never told the Jews to stop being circumcised. What he said was, it's just not a prerequisite for salvation. See, too many of us are telling our brothers and sisters how to think. You see, the reality is that they've been discipled in the same way that we've been discipled. We've been led to believe this way we went to, we've been led to believe. That's the reason why 80% of white evangelicals vote Republican and why 80%, 90% of blacks vote a certain way, Democrat, right? That's the reason why you see the same thing with Hispanics, the same thing, because we've been discipled into it. And basically what he says, that your cultural discipleship has of no effect to your salvation and to your unity in Christ. 
And he says, now listen, I'm, I'm, I'm coming here and I'm saying like that vertical thing that has been torn down, it's the same thing that's been horizontally. The very thing that separated circumcision and being uncircumcised, I've torn that down. And that circumcision has no effect. But hey, if you have to continue to do it to, to be connected with God, then keep doing it. But don't, those that are uncircumcised, don't be circumcised. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 7. He says, walk in the manner, blossom where you're planted, serve God. And he says it's in that he gives us access to God's people. He gives us the peace of God. We have access to the people of God. We have access to God's place, to the place of God. Verse 17 through 22, as we close, it says this. He came and proclaimed the good news to, of peace to you who were far away and, to, and peace to those who are near. I love that. You got to read that again. Verse 17. He came and proclaimed the good news of peace. Where's peace? There's no more beef between us and God, beef with one another. He preached that peace to those who are far away and to those who are near. Regardless if you are near or whether you are far away, it has no concern to God. He came to proclaim the gospel. Verse 18, he says, give us the reason, because through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. What is that access? He brings us the access of the sanctuary of the temple. Right? If you remember, like if you were here on Good Friday, if you came during that time, basically we talked about like there's only a few people, only the, the high priests were able to go and have, go into the holies of holies. That now in Christ we all have access. He says what we have in him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, there he goes again, therefore, you are no longer foreigners and strangers. You have access because you are now citizens. But he doesn't just say citizens, he says fellow citizens. The church is not like family, it is family. See, the reality is, is that we're all good. We're talking about the vertical family that we, we all can relate as brothers, uh, sons and daughters. But oftentimes we struggle with being brothers and sisters especially brothers and sisters of people who don't look like us, talk like us, act like us, people who have different opinions than us. So we're good with sons and daughters, but our sibling theology is lacking. He says, you are no longer foreigners. You are no longer strangers, but you're fellow citizens, fellow citizens with the saints, members of God's household, built on a foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. Christ is our cornerstone. He's our cornerstone. And then he ends off in concluding, and he says, listen, in him, in him, it goes back to in him. Those that are in Christ, the whole building being put together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you are also being built together for God's dwelling place, for God's dwelling in the Spirit. You see, what we see is that Christ is our cornerstone. He gives us a new identity. In the same way he says that we are his poema, his workmanship, in verse 10, is the same way that we see right here in verse 22. 
that we are his workmanship. And what is his workmanship? Is that he is building a house that is made of Jews and Gentiles, slaves and free, men and women. All these, these, these distinctions that we've had, he is building a new thing. And so part of God's masterpiece is that we are reconciled to God and we are reconciled to one another. So we see that God's new identity is multicultural, multi-ethnic, multi-generational, multi-socioeconomic, that he is building a new institution, a new reality. And part of his masterpiece is that those who were once distanced from one another have been brought near. It doesn't mean we don't have problems. It doesn't mean we won't have tensions. It, won't, it doesn't mean that we don't have to address and, and speak the truth and love to one another. But we are not to rebuild the dividing wall that Christ abolished. This is what it means to be God's masterpiece. And what does he cause us? And of all things, he says, simply, your one responsibility is remember. Remember. Don't be a part of the Antichrist, the vision of the Antichrist. What God brings together, let no man tear apart. And if we in any way are trying to divide God's church, we are in opposition with God. It's his masterpiece. It's his work. It's his new reality that he's building. We are his workmanship. We are adopted sons and daughters. We are brothers and sisters. We are one in Christ. We are his church. We are God's citizens. We are God's family. We live in God's residence. We are called to join him in his good works. So why? Why? Because we got to remember why we have access to Christ. And basically 13, 17, and 18, this says this, he brought us near by his blood. Verse 17, he came and proclaimed to both. Verse 19, he sent his spirit. God is in the active. We are in the passive. God is at work, period. He is at work. It's our responsibility to remember that we are his workmanship. That's the only command in the first two chapters. Go back and read it. There is not one other command for us but to remember. We are to remember that even when we're not at work, he is still working on our behalf. And that his work has given us the ministry, is, is about him reconciling us to him and us to one another. That's his masterpiece. That's his masterpiece. And that's our call. So what we're going to do is that we're going to take some time remembering him. I'm going to ask the, the greeters to take some time. We're going to do one of the signs that God tells us to remember him is that through communion the Lord's Supper. Thanks for worshiping with us. For more information about Blueprint Church, visit us online at blueprintchurch.org. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Blueprint Church. Have a great week, and we'll see you next Sunday.